my goal is to um, do a couple things. Um, first of all, let me tell you what I don't want to do. I'm not going to stand on, on stage and endorse a specific party or candidate. Okay, so if you're here this morning and you endorse a specific party or candidate and you're hoping that I'm going to be like, yeah, vote for this guy so you can stand up and be like, yeah, that's not how this is going to happen this morning, okay? Uh, I do not believe that is my place, and I don't believe it is the church's place to endorse a specific party or candidate. Um, there's a guy named Tim Keller uh, who's much smarter than I am. He's a pastor in New York City, and Tim Keller wrote that if the Christian faith gets identified with a political party, it reduces the Christian faith to a political position. And I think that there's a lot of wisdom in that. So my goal this morning is not to stand up here on stage and say, vote for this person. Um, My goal this morning is to help you think through the importance of our system of government and specifically how, as Christians, we should think and act inside the political arena. Now, if you're not a Christian here this morning, if you're not a believer here this morning, if you've got a card or maybe you just kind of saw, like, that's great. I am so glad that you're here this morning. You're going to hear a lot about how, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we're called to live and called to interact and engage in the political arena. But at the end, and through this sermon, I, I want you to pay attention to all of that. But at the very end, I've got something specific for you and for all of us. So before we jump into this this morning, I want to pray. Uh, that God would be very gracious to me as we talk about the gospel and the presidential election this morning. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for this morning. God, I just thank you for this opportunity that we've had to worship you this morning. God, as we pray, first of all, God, I just want to pray for those um, in New York City and New Jersey and in the Northeast, God, that have been affected this week um, by Hurricane Sandy. God, we just pray for those that are in the midst of that devastation right now, God, that, um, Father, even through tragic circumstances, God, that you would be exalted, that that people would see you, that, God, as the um, people work to restore, um, God, as the people work to rebuild, uh, Father, that uh, you would just have a real presence in the midst of that, God, that people would see that you are a God who loves to take things that are broken and rebuild them. So, God, we pray for the families and the workers and the volunteers and those who are affected this morning by that. But, God, this morning as we meet and we talk about um, politics and we talk about the presidential election, I pray that you would lead us this morning as we talk through this. God, that we would recognize first and foremost that you are in control of all things, Father, that you are the one who establishes rulers and authorities. God, that we would receive wisdom from you this morning, from the Holy Spirit, from the Holy Scriptures, as to how we should live and engage in our culture. And Father, that as you reveal things to our hearts this morning, our hearts would be open to respond in obedience. We love you. Thank you for Jesus. We pray that he would be glorified this morning. In his name we pray. Amen. Um, So if you know anything about polite conversation, you know that there are several rules about polite conversation. One of the rules about polite conversation is there are certain things that you don't talk about in polite conversation. Okay? And, and some of those things are, the two main things are what? Religion and politics. Okay, so let's throw out polite conversation this morning and say that we're going to talk about religion and politics this morning. And specifically, we're going to talk about how one of those things always influences the other. 
Um, one of the things that we've done, I think that our, our, our country has done, is, is taught us in our minds to separate politics and religion. But I want to say this morning, I would contend that they are not mutually exclusive. Um, they're going to be intertwined, as we're going to see through this sermon this morning. The separation of church and state in the public forum is a great thing. Okay? It is a great thing. Separation of church and state in the public forum, great thing. However, the separation of church and state in our hearts, the separation of religion and politics can bring about disastrous results. So before we talk about a proper, scripturally informed view of politics this morning, I want to look at two extreme views of politics that I feel that a lot of Christians oftentimes stumble into. So I've named these two extreme views of politics. The first we'll call the chain email view of politics. And the second we'll call your cousin Eddie's view of politics. All right? So, so let's, let, let me give you a little, let me work that out. So first we'll look at the chain email view of politics. Uh, this view of politics, I would say, is summed up in the chain emails that you receive from random people on your email contact list or in some cases from your grandfather. Anybody, anybody get any of those like, crazy chain emails? All right. They usually have subject titles like um, conservative judge holds court in white hood and robe. And you're like, what? He did what? I can't believe it. <laughs> or, or they say things like liberal group sets fire to Christmas. And you're like, I don't, I don't even know that you could do that. How do you set fire to a holiday? The goal of these emails is to do what? Is to grab your attention and is to scare you into being politically active. And all of a sudden, what you see is you start to look at one group and say, I can't believe that they would do that. I've got to jump onto that cause. And usually what we begin to see is that this view of politics, the chain email view of politics, is an extreme view of politics that believes that we will not have harmony or unity and that the world will not be safe until one political party is in control of the presidential, uh, of the presidential election, of the Congress, of all gubernatorial positions, of local dog catchers. All of these things, like we're all looking at, it's got to be one way or the other. And what we see in this view, the chain email view of politics, um, it elevates one set of ideas. It idealizes one party to the demonization of another. Do you know that? When you idealize something, you've got to demonize something else. And what this view of politics does is it goes, this is the way, these are the people, these are the things, and if we can get all of our party to do this, if we can get all of our people into all of these positions of power, then everything on earth will be solved, all of our problems will be taken care of. And we see people that actively fight every day to make sure that one party is elevated, one party is demonized, and we're working to put all of one thing into power. The problem with this view is this. This view elevates the beliefs and parties, the beliefs and platforms of one party and makes them the ultimate authority in society. We've got to have, we've got to have all right wing or we've got to have all left wing. And what happens to God when we deal with political extremists is God simply becomes a political means to a political end. God is someone simply to be referenced in order to gain support for something else that is ultimate in society. And we've seen this. You've seen this. You've seen how God is used by both parties to justify one set of beliefs or another. 
The problem with this view is this, that both political parties, all political parties, are made up of broken, sinful people. And for all the good ideas and policies they could put in place, no political party will ever be able to properly address the problem of sin and evil. Which leads us to the second view. This is your cousin Eddie's view of politics. All right, everybody's got this one relative that shows up at Thanksgiving, okay? And and, and this is this view. This view of politics says that all politicians are crooks, they're thieves, they're swindlers. The political system is broken and should be done away with. They'll tell awkward jokes like this. They'll say, if you were in a room with a rabid wolf and a hungry grizzly bear and a politician, I gave you a gun with two bullets, who would you shoot? You'd shoot the politician twice. Like that, that, everybody's like, come on, man. Like, it's a bear and a wolf. What's wrong with you? They believe that their vote doesn't count. Your vote shouldn't count. That they're all, it doesn't matter who's in power. Politics is not important. They're indifferent to it. And they'll tell you about that. Your vote doesn't matter. It doesn't count. This view kind of espouses the belief that all governments and all positions of authority are evil and they're equal and they, they're all, it's the man. You know, you're at that how that works out. This kind of idea of your cousin Eddie's view of politics, which simply says that it's all broken. It's all busted. We should remove ourselves as far as we can from these situations. And the problem with this view is that although man is sinful and we are broken, God has given us the incredible capacity to do good. And man has been charged to have dominion over the earth. And it is God who establishes kings and rulers. So if God establishes them, they are under God's authority. We've got to have some sort of, we can't just be indifferent to it. So I'm going to look at a third view this morning, the scriptural view, which believes that politics While it is important, it is not ultimate. While politics is important, it is not ultimate. I believe there are four things that the scripture teach us that should inform our views of politics and the political system. Or four things that we are called to do to be politically responsible followers of Jesus. If you've got your Bibles with you this morning, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Starting in verse 1. First uh, Timothy is in the uh, New Testament. If you don't have a Bible this morning, uh, the verse is going to be on the screen, so don't worry about that. First Timothy chapter 2. We're going to read verse 1 through 6. Verses on the screen. First Timothy chapter 2. This is Paul, the Apostle Paul. He's writing to Timothy. Timothy, who is a pastor of the ancient city of Ephesus, of the church in, in Ephesus. Paul writes this to Timothy. He says, first of all, Then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So the first thing we are called to do if we're going to be politically responsible followers of Jesus, the first thing I believe we're called to do is to pray. Notice that's the first thing that Paul urges Timothy to do. He says um, in verse 1, pray for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Note that Paul doesn't say pray only for the leaders that you like or pray only for the kings that you agree with. But he says pray for kings and 
all who are in high positions. Now, your argument to this might sound something like this. Well, if Paul had known about our leaders, if he'd have known about the men who are in high positions now, he would have told us to pray against them, not for them. But you've got to know a little bit about Paul. Paul is writing First Timothy. He's writing this letter to Timothy. He has just been released from house arrest for preaching the gospel under the Roman authorities. Right? So he's just been arrested by the Roman authorities he's preached, for preaching the gospel. He's just gotten out. Okay, So he's just been freed. He's writing this letter to Timothy. And eventually, Paul is going to be arrested again and will eventually be killed by the same authorities that he's telling Timothy, you've got to pray for him. So if there's anybody who has any issue, if there's anybody who has any cause to say, pray against these rulers and authorities, it's Paul, but he doesn't. He says, pray for the kings, for those who are in high authority. Why do you think Paul does this? I think there's two reasons that Paul tells Timothy to specifically pray for the leaders. First, I think Paul knows and understands that God is ultimately the one who is in control of all things. I'll I'll show you where you guys, where where we get this in scripture so you don't think I'm making this up. Romans 13.1 says, For there is no authority except from God, And those that exist have been instituted by God. So there's no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. In Psalm 22, 28, the writer of the Psalm says, For the kingdom is the Lord's and he is the governor among all the nations. So Paul understands that God is ultimately the one who establishes kings. He's ultimately the one who is in control. So he asks Timothy to pray, commands Timothy to pray that the men and the kings and the, and the leaders that are in high positions, that they would listen to God's word. That they would listen to his judgments. That they would listen to his wisdom. Paul says you've got to pray for your leaders to listen to God who is the ultimate authority. In Proverbs 19.21, it says, There are many devices in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the counsel, it is the counsel of the Lord that will stand. Paul says we should pray for our leaders that they would lead in a way that honors God. Now, leaders don't always honor God. I would contend that the more a leader doesn't honor God, the more we should pray for them. Paul says, here's the second thing, okay? The second part of this is this, um, and and I'll phrase it this way. Let me ask you a question. Um, Have you ever prayed for somebody? Anybody in here ever prayed for somebody? Okay, all right. And I I mean really intentionally, compassionately prayed for somebody. Okay, not just kind of like, oh, God bless Johnny, make him rich. All right, like like not like, not that idea, but, but like you've spent hours and days laboring for someone in prayer. You ever done that? What begins to happen in your heart when you labor for somebody in prayer? Your heart starts to have compassion for them, right? Like even if they don't, even if what they're doing, you don't necessarily agree with. Even if they've done something that that wrongs you, when you consistently spend time praying for somebody, it becomes very difficult for your heart to hate that person, right? So I think one of the things that our political arena, one of the things that's happened in our political arena today our political arena of mudslinging and attack ads is we've been taught that when we disagree with someone, we've got to hate them. That it's not good enough to just disagree with their policies. We've got to hate them. Can't believe that person. Hate that person. Paul says when we pray for those people, it makes it really, really difficult for our hearts to hate them. 
Makes it really, really difficult. You can pray for somebody and disagree with them. You can pray for somebody and probably dislike them. You can't pray for somebody and hate them. Jesus understands this. Jesus says in Matthew 5, what's he say? He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus understands this. That when you pray for your enemies, all of a sudden they don't become your enemies anymore because your heart has compassion on them and for them. And they can do things to you and they can do things that you disagree with, but it's very difficult for your heart to hate someone who you are laboring for in prayer. So Paul says, we pray for the kings, for the rulers, for the authorities. We pray. We don't, um, in Exodus, Moses sets forth the law that he's gotten from God. In Exodus twenty two twenty eight, it says, you shall not curse the ruler of your people. Do you know that? You should not curse the ruler of your people. If God establishes all kings and authorities, he says he's established them. Even if we don't like what they stand for, we don't curse the ruler of our authorities. Paul contends with this and he says, he contends for this when he says pray for them. Don't curse them. He says pray. How, how different would your life look if instead of every time a politician made you angry, you took to Facebook and wrote a 12-page post about how you can't believe this person has done what they've done. Instead of doing that, you got on your knees and you began to pray, God, change their heart. What our lives look like if we actually prayed. Instead of cursing or complaining, we pray. And in doing so, we bring the person before God, the leader, the king before God, and we protect our own hearts from falling into sin. Secondly, Secondly, we're called to pray. We're called to be informed. Look back at the First Timothy passage. First Timothy uh, 2, in, in verse 2, it says that we pray for all people that, that we might lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, and that this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to come to the knowledge of the truth. Here's what Paul's describing here. He's describing an evangelistic lifestyle. He says we do these things so that we can live an evangelistic lifestyle. And that's a big way to say we want to live lives as believers that point others to Christ. He says we, want, we not only want to pray, but we want to live lives that point other people to Christ. This is very important in the scriptures. Jesus talks about this evangelistic lifestyle, a life that points others to him. Uh, Matthew five thirteen through 16, Jesus says to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. But they put it on a stand so that it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. He says that we pray We are informed so that we may live an evangelistic lifestyle, a Christ-exalting lifestyle that points others to Jesus. Now, what does this evangelistic lifestyle have to do with politics? Here's what I think it has to do with politics. Whether you think so or not, okay, people care, people in our country care about politics. Some of you might not care at all. I I talked to a couple college students earlier this week. They were like, we don't care. Like, some of you might not care at all. Like, but people in our country care about politics. They, they do. 67 million people tuned into the first presidential debate. 67 million people turned into the first presidential debate. 51 million people turned in, tuned in to the vice presidential debate. 
51 million people. If we care about the evangelistic lifestyle, if we care about lives that point others to Christ, we're going to have to care about what people care about. When we won't engage people with something they see, and we will not engage people with things that they see have no value. Um, Paul writes about this really beautifully in 1 Corinthians as I kind of tie this together. He says, To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, that I myself, though I myself am not under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Paul says that he cares about what lost people care about so that he might have the opportunity to share Christ with lost people. So I think that the scriptures would tell us that first we're called to pray for our leaders and those who are in high positions. Secondly, I think he calls us to be informed about political things because lost people care about politics. And if we're going to engage with a lost world, we have to engage them on the level that they are. So we've got to understand a little bit of something about politics so that in engaging someone politically, we might be able to point them to Christ. So first, if you're keeping track, one, we pray. Secondly, we become informed. But that's not the only reason that we should care about politics. Um, There are political issues right now that the Bible does not speak to. Okay, Like there are things that are happening in politics right now the Bible doesn't speak to. All right. Um, so you can form your own opinion on the tax code. All right. You can form your own opinion on education. Okay. There are certain issues that, that the Bible doesn't speak to. However, there are certain political issues that the Bible specifically speaks to. And as Christians, we are called to speak into them in our lives as well. We pray. We're informed so that others might come to know Christ as we engage them politically. And third, we are called to be active. We're called to pray, called to be informed, we're called to be active. I'm going to move away from our First Timothy passage just for a second to show you a passage in Micah. Um, it's an Old Testament passage. Micah is an Old Testament prophet. Um, the Lord is actually speaking to Micah here, and he says, um, where, where he talks about, Micah is actually asking about, um, what can we bring? What, what, are there sacrifices that we can give to God? What does God want from us And it's summed up beautifully in Micah 6, 8. God gives his command to his people. He says, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. It's Micah 6, 8. It says there's three things that God requires of his followers, of Christians. He says that we do justice, that we love kindness, and that we walk humbly with God. Now, I believe that those three commands have bear weight on three very important issues that the Bible specifically speaks to. So let's look at those three real quick. First, we're called to do justice. I believe that do justice speaks specifically to the issue of abortion, or more so the issue of the pro-life cause. We believe as a church, okay, maybe you don't know this. We believe as a church that life begins at conception, and that's what the Bible teaches. Let me show you the scripture for that. 
Psalm 139, 13 through 15 says, For you, this is David writing to the Lord, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, in your book written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. We believe as a church, we believe as followers of Christ that life is precious and it is an atrocity whenever life, specifically the life of a helpless child, is taken. We also believe that we are called as believers in Christ to take up the cause of those who cannot defend themselves, thereby doing justice. Since the passage of Roe v. Wade in 1973, the National Right to Life Committee estimates that there have been nearly 55 million babies aborted in the United States. 55 million babies have been aborted in the United States. That is five times the number of people who were killed in the Holocaust. That means the greatest case of genocide in the history of humanity has happened in the last 40 years in our country. I think sometimes as Christians, we don't resonate with this. Um, Joseph Stalin, it's funny that I would quote Joseph Stalin to talk about doing justice. Joseph Stalin said something that was, um, I, I think, brilliant. He says, when one person dies, it is a tragedy. When a million die, it is a statistic. And my brothers and sisters, my fear is that abortion has simply become a statistic to us, not something that we are actively fighting to do justice against in our society. If we, as believers in Christ, will not stand up for the innocent and the helpless, who will? The Bible specifically speaks to this cause. And as believers, this must bear weight on our souls. Secondly, he says we're called to love kindness. Do justice, love kindness. I believe that love kindness talks about caring for the poor. Joel talked about it just a minute ago. James one twenty seven. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep, one's un, to keep oneself unstained from the world. As believers, we have been commanded to serve and care for the poor. This is not optional. It is essential. It is not optional. It is essential. The prophet Isaiah tells us that the Messiah, that Jesus would bring the good news to the poor. Jesus spends much of his earthly ministry caring for and ministering to the poor. If it was an important part of Jesus' ministry, shouldn't it follow that Christians who are followers of Jesus should be equally concerned about caring for the poor both locally and worldwide? When you vote, not only should the issue of doing justice bear weight on your soul, but the issue of caring for the poor should also bear weight as well. Third, the Bible speaks to another pretty popular issue. It says that we are called to do justice, to love kindness, and walk humbly with God. 
To walk humbly with God means that we submit to God's authority over all things. And we recognize that he is right, good, and just in all that he does. And that we will follow this truth. Now, how does this idea, walking humbly with God, fold into a social issue? We believe simply as a church that marriage is defined as a covenantal relationship between a man and a woman that symbolizes the relationship between Christ and his church. Walking humbly with God means that we don't get to define things that God has already defined. We submit to his design and authority in all things. God has designed marriage as a union between a man and a woman, not merely two people of the same gender who love one another. As Christians, we side with the Bible on the issue of marriage because it is a covenant that God has designed a specific way. And in doing so, we walk humbly with God. Why? Because he's defined it for us. So when you walk humbly with someone, you say, I'm willing to submit to your authority, even if your authority plays on things that I may not feel are the best way to do it. But I submit to your authority. I trust you. I know you're good and right in all that you do. So I think that these three issues, the issue of abortion, the issue of care for the poor, and the issue of marriage, The Bible speaks specifically to them. And when we as believers go to the polls to vote, we have to vote with these three things on our hearts and minds. This is where the tension kind of begins to come in. Okay? This is where tension starts to fold because there might be things that we like that the Bible doesn't specifically speak to. Right? There might be things on one side that we like that the Bible doesn't speak to But as believers, we are called then to allow the truth of God's word to outweigh our political opinion. It's part of walking humbly with God. It's going, I'm going to allow the truth of the scripture to speak directly into my life, even if the truth of the scripture goes against what I think or what I feel or what my opinion might be on something else. Remember back in the introduction when I said that politics and religion can't be mutually exclusive in our hearts? We must allow God's word to influence the way we vote. We must allow our religion to influence our politics. We must. We must be mindful of the issues that the Bible specifically speaks to and pray over how that impacts the candidates and the policies we support. So we're called to pray, called to be active, or we're called to pray, called to be informed, called to be active. Finally, we're called to trust Jesus. Here's where everything gets really good. We're called to trust Jesus. All right. Um, So I'm not a mechanic. I know you're looking at me like, that doesn't shock me. I'm not a mechanic. I'm really not. Um, There are two types of men in this world. There are men who fix things, and then there are men who pay other men to fix things for them. I am of the second breed. All right. Um, so when things break around my house, my wife has said, call someone. Like, just, just call them, all right? So as I've learned that, all right? So a couple of months ago, my wife's radiator broke in her car. Radiator, that's a thing, right? Yeah. All right, so my wife's radiator breaks in her car, okay? So it's my responsibility then to make sure that my wife's car is fixed. So when I, uh, I'm, I can't do it. I don't know how to fix a radiator. So what do I have to do? I've got to take it to a mechanic, right? Somebody that knows the car, knows how to fix what the issue is. Now, here's what I didn't do. When my wife's radiator broke, I didn't drive it to a body shop, all right, and say, guys, let's get a new coat of paint on this bad boy, right? 
I didn't drive to a body shop. Guys, there's a dent in the back fender I need you to pull out and paint it. What, what does that do? If I got a busted radiator, what does taking it to a body shop and getting a car repainted do? It doesn't do anything, right? Because ultimately, the car might look good, but it's still broken on the inside. Politicians, parties, politics, they're body shop workers. All of their work is external. They, they don't fix what's inside. So if we're trusting in a politician or a party or a platform to bring us hope and joy and fulfillment in life, we're taking a broken car to a body shop work and we're throwing a slap of paint on a car that doesn't run. We've got to take it to a mechanic. And Jesus is the great mechanic. He's the only one that's going to be able to fix what's wrong with your car. And he's the best at it. You know why? Because he built the car. He built it. He made it. He knows how to fix what's busted. We've got to trust Jesus. No politician, no party, no platform is ever going to bring you true joy, fulfillment in life the way that Jesus does. Here's why. 1 Timothy 5, 6. We finish up. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. The man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Politics will never be able to fix what's really wrong with us. Our ultimate problem is sin. The sin that lives in me and in you and everyone else, including our public servants. This is why we fight and struggle the way that we do. The problem in society isn't the left wing. It isn't the right wing. It's inside of us. And until we're willing to have someone fix the problem inside of us, we're never going to find what we're looking for. And for too long, we've put our hope and our dreams in politicians and parties and platforms instead of taking it to the only one who can solve what the real deep issue in us is. Only Jesus offers us the promise of real hope, real joy, real change, real fulfillment. And the greatest thing about Jesus is we don't have to reelect him as king every four years. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and this morning. If you've been trusting in something else, be it politics, be it your marriage, be it your family, be it your job, if you've been trusting in something else other than Jesus to bring you fulfillment in your life, to bring you joy everlasting, to fix what's broken in you, you've been taking your broken car to a body shop. And Jesus offers you the gospel this morning and he says, don't trust in those things. Those things are external. Only I can fix the real issue. So I'm going to land here. If you're not a believer this morning, the gospel is simply this. You are, you like myself, we're all broken. We're born apart from God. We're sinful. We're evil. We are rebelled against his good will. And God, through the person of Jesus Christ, has taken our sins on himself. And this morning, he wants to bring you hope and change and joy and fulfillment through Jesus Christ. 
If you'll open your heart to receive him, he'll come in and he'll change not only your life here, but the scope of your life in all eternity. If you're a Christian this morning, I encourage you Tuesday to vote. I encourage you to vote. Be a part of this political system. Men and women have died so that we have the right to vote. Don't tread lightly on that sacrifice. But when you vote, recognize that you are voted, that the scripture bears weight on the issues that you are going to go to the polls about. That you need to spend time praying and letting the Holy Spirit walk you through how you think about using your vote. But when you vote, understand that it's important, but it's not ultimate. And even if your guy wins or if he loses, it doesn't change the fact that God is still king. He establishes rulers and authorities and he's the only one that offers real hope and change in your life today. Let's pray. God, you are great and good. And Father, um, as we we take this next couple moments, we're just gonna pray. Pray for our country, pray for our election. God, pray that our leaders... God, would submit to you in all things. God, that we would um, not look to a specific party or platform or person to be our joy and our fulfillment. God, we would look to Jesus Christ. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word bears weight on our souls. I pray, God, that we would not allow our opinions or our ideas to outweigh the truth and the authority of your word. God, that we would love um, to do justice and kindness and walk humbly with you. I pray for the men and women here this morning who have been challenged by your word, God, that you would just, um, God, that you would just give them a, a real clarity of the, in their hearts and in their minds is what they're supposed to do, Father. And that they would walk in obedience to doing your will. God, we thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name. Um, here's what we're going to do as we kind of close this morning. The band's going to play. I just want you to spend the next couple minutes, and Joel's going to have you stand in just a minute. I just want you to spend the next couple minutes and just pray.